Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm Senior Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications here at EAA. On my left... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And way over there across the table... Tom Sharpentier, EAA Government Relations Director. All right. And Tom, you've got uh, somebody sitting with you as well. That's right. I uh, brought my boss with me today. Um, Sean Elliott is our uh, Vice President of Advocacy and Safety. Since we're talking about gliders today, um, I've got a little bit of experience with gliders. My first ever flight actually was in a glider in, uh, in New Hampshire. But um, uh, Sean has been um, really kind of immersed in the world of gliders over the last couple of years uh, through some of the air show stuff that we've done with uh, Luca, Berto- Luca Bertosio, um, the, uh, the aerobatic display that he helped coordinate, and then also his son uh, has been training in gliders and actually soloed on his 14th birthday. So he's been uh, flying a little bit out at Williams Soaring Center in California, and he's actually going out there again uh, this month to do that. This is uh, We're recording this in March. Um, so, uh, Sean, welcome. Yeah, thanks, everybody. This is uh, fun. This is near and dear to my heart, and I am hooked. Excellent. Now, Tom, uh, we also have, of course, a uh, featured guest joining us uh, via the magic of the Internet. Absolutely. So Jim Payne is the uh, chief pilot of the uh, Perlin Project, which is the uh, project that's working on uh, the or has actually recently broken the high altitude soaring record and is uh, aiming to go even higher. Uh, and uh, Jim is started off at a great place to start soaring, the Air Force Academy, um, and uh, he's a graduate of the Air Force Test Pilot School. Uh, he's um, held several records actually before this project. Um, he uh, flew a Grobe 103 up to an altitude of uh, 42,000 feet, wearing a pressure suit. That was uh, one of his uh, one of his uh, high altitude flights early on. And um, Jim with the Perlin Project is also up for a Collier Trophy uh, this year, alongside, among others, TSA PreCheck. So, uh, Jim, uh, suffice to say, we're rooting for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's great to have you on the show, Jim. Well, it's Jim, my pleasure to be here. Uh, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about your background in aviation and, and what initially brought you to the Perlin Project? Well, I was inspired by my dad, who flew B-24s and B-17s during World War II. So growing up, I was always interested in flying. I was about 12 years old. My grandfather gave me a copy of a National Geographic magazine that described soaring on the ridges in Pennsylvania. And I was hooked immediately. So I was uh, fortunate enough to get an appointment with the Air Force Academy in 1971. I soloed and uh, ended up getting my license and became a cadet instructor which is a fantastic program involving both leadership and uh, flying. And then after graduation with the pilot training, got to fly F-4s. I was an F-5 aggressor, went to test pilot school, got to fly the F-16XL and test. After I retired, I worked at Northrop, did some management of the Global Hawk flight test, and did first flight on something called the Northrop Grumman Firebird. And also did first flight on the Perlin II when it flew in... uh, 2015. Now, uh, did your dad ever compare the B-17 and B-24 back then and uh, have a favorite? Dad's favorite was the B-17. Ah, that's right. <laughs> what else would however, there be? However, <laughs> however, growing up, he talked fondly of P-51s. He wished he'd been able to fly, fly P-51s, but his whole class, when he went through, I guess, advanced, ended up going to B-17s. So, he didn't have a choice, so 
I was inspired to work really hard in pilot training so that I would get an F-4 assignment. That F-4 had to be quite the uh, airplane to try on as well. It was, and it was really satisfying to fly because it required a little bit of pilot compensation. You know, the F-16, they call it the plumber's helper because any plumber can fly it. uh, (laughs) The F-4 took a a little bit of skill. Uh, Was that true of the uh, F-16 XL? And for those who don't know, that was the sort of double Delta F-16, wasn't it? Yes, sir. And, well, both of them were very easy to fly. Um, The XL gained a little bit of weight, so it uh, wasn't as agile as the little airplane. But if you wanted to haul bombs and if you wanted to go a long ways at low altitude, it was an awesome airplane. Well, Jim, we could spend all day talking about B-17s and P-51s and F-16s, but we're here to talk. NF-4s. Thank you, pal. That's true. That's true. All cool stuff. By the way, I'm an examiner in our B-17 and do our crew training, so I absolutely love that airplane. However, we're here to talk about the Pearl and Glider. Um, there's always somebody who wants to keep us on track. I know. <laughs> These guys bring me down as a guest, and here I'm cracking the whip. Yeah, Sorry about that. But, but Jim, we are really interested in this project and what you guys are achieving with it. What, what can you tell us about the glider itself as far as its design and perhaps uh, compare it to, to uh, a known type like the DG-1000 or the ASK-21? What, uh, what's the Perlin like? Well, the Perlin is purpose-built. And the unique feature of the Perlin is a pressurization system. Um, from a distance, you notice that it has round windows like Spaceship One. Again, that's the easiest way to build a structure with minimum weight. The wingspan is 25 meters, 84 feet, which is similar to other racing class gliders or, or open class gliders. It uh, weighs slightly more than a typical open class sailplane. It has more wing area because it's designed to climb as opposed to be very efficient in high-speed runs. It uh, carries a crew of two. Um, we normally overpressurize at one PSI at low altitude, and we have a set point right now of 14,400 feet, and when we pass that altitude, it maintains that uh, cabin pressure all the way to uh, flight level 900, which is a design point for the sailplane. Zero, zero. Wow. That just that number normally does not equate with most sailplanes that I'm familiar with, but that is amazing. So I'm assuming you pressurize the cabin with just a, a gaseous uh, compressed source of, of oxygen? Exactly. The cabin is designed to have very low leaks. We have a 114 cubic foot scuba bottle in the tail boom, and that makes up the leaks. It's sized for an eight-hour mission. We've flown 6.6 hours, and it's worked very well for us. Wow. What is the L over D on the, on the aircraft? The airplane has wings which have Reynolds numbers or optimal rental numbers for about flight level 600. So low altitude is actually not as efficient as you might expect. It's uh, probably around uh, 42 to 43 is the best L over D. Okay, that's still but again, pretty high. Exactly. But we're worried about uh, min-sync. You know, a typical racing sailplane with the same wingspan is around 60. Yeah. And for those who may not know, when we talk about L over D, we're talking about lift over drag. And am I correct in assuming that uh, when you put out the number of 42, 43, and then 60, um, we would also equate that directly to the glide, glide ratio? That's correct. So, yeah. So exactly. 43 to 1 would be uh, for every foot lost in altitude, you go 43 feet ahead. 
Exactly. So, so from 90,000 feet, let me do the math. <laughs> I don't have that kind of time. You can almost go transcontinental. <laughs> well, especially downwind, uh, you know, the weather balloons that we were launching last year in Argentina were showing 160 to 200 knots wind at uh, 90 to, to 100,000 feet. <laughs> So, Jim, primarily do you guys aerotow? Is that how you get the, the aircraft up to the altitude and starting point for what your mission is? Yes, it's unpowered. So we have a nose hook, and we tow. I'm flying out of El Calafate, where we went to 52,221 on September 3rd. We towed from El Calafate Airport, which is about 30 miles downwind of where the wave is. Airport's about 660 feet MSL, and we were at 10,500 when we released. Gotcha. Wow. And what kind of a tow plane? We were using an Argentine Aero Borero, which is an Argentine copy of a Super Cub, basically, oh, 180 okay. horse. Wow. <laughs> How long does that take you to get to 10,000 feet? behind an Argentinian Super Cub. It sounds, like, it sounds like a joke. An Argentinian Super Cub walks into a bar. But uh, anyway, how long does that take you? It took 40 minutes. Our, our longest tow was 75 minutes during our campaign. But typically it's 40 to uh, 60 minutes depending on the wind. Unfortunately, sometimes as you climb up on these nice wave days, you're encountering 40 or 50 knot headwinds at nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet. So your ground speed uh, is not so good at the end of the tow. Do you ballast the glider at all? Not for altitude attempts. For an altitude attempt, you'd like the lightest possible wing loading for climbing. Right. But, of course, if we were planning on flying for distance or speed, you'd like ballast. Okay. And what do you wear when you're flying these uh, these record attempts? Like what kind of – are you wearing a suit or are you wearing just a flight suit? Well, the airplane is designed to spacecraft standards, so we have a safety factor of three instead of one and a half in the cabin. So the maximum working pressure of the cabin is eight and a half PSI. We actually built a test article, which we tested to 25 PSI. Because there's no internal leaks or leaks from the outside through the canopy, it's actually warmer than you might expect inside. You know, I've flown other sailplanes with a normal canopy, and typically the canopy frame shrinks and you have air leaks, and it's very cold inside. On September 3rd, the lowest altitude we recorded on the outside was minus 68C, which is minus 90F, as we as we transitioned the tropopause. The temperature inside the cabin varies greatly across the cabin. The sunny side is much warmer than the shady side. The lowest temperature we recorded was about zero Fahrenheit. We're wearing a, a call it Wave Titan overall. It's a Italian-made flying suit, which is essentially a ski suit. I had on boots with insole heaters, 12-volt insole heaters, pants liners that were 12-volt, and a vest that was 12-volt. I did not use the pants or vests, just the insoles. And I only wore my gloves about 25% of the flight. So it was pretty comfortable in the cabin. That, that's amazing. So w when you're working that kind of wave lift, I have not flown wave yet. I've only been flying some thermal activity and, and just normal glider ops. But what uh, what's the turbulence factor like? I mean, is it is it very turbulent in that that kind of lift up at those altitudes? Wave is one of the most interesting phenomenons that occurs in the atmosphere. At very low altitude, underneath the arched part of the wave, there can be extreme turbulence. We call that rotor. And if you've ridden on an airliner going in and out of Reno on 
a day with a mountain wave, you've experienced that. The area where the lift occurs is the most laminar flow you can imagine. And the transition occurs in about 200 feet. I've, I've towed through the rotor before, and the tow plane, which is in front of me 200 feet because of the length of the tow rope, comes out of the rotor and all of a sudden kind of surges upward, and it gets very smooth. And then you get off there and uh, start climbing. I saw an average of 2,800 feet a minute at about 7,000 feet MSL near Mojave one time. But typically the wave lift down low is on the order of, well, it depends, but as much as, uh, you know, two to 3,000 feet a minute, and it tapers off a little bit as you go to altitude. Could you describe a little bit more about the, uh, about the location where you're setting these flights, how you chose that, and what's uh, special about that area that, uh, that's giving you this, uh, the, the strong wave? When uh, you have strong winds that are perpendicular to mountain range, and the air is stable, you end up with these waves in the air. Typically at uh, temperate latitudes, like latitudes of the United States, the winds die off above the tropopause, which is 35 to 45,000 feet normally. And when the winds die off, the wave stops propagating. But in the wintertime at the North Pole and the South Pole, so it's dark and cold, the higher atmosphere develops a phenomenon called the polar night jet or the polar vortex. And it causes the high altitude structure, the stratosphere to have strong winds also. And if you have a low altitude wave in the troposphere pushing on the bottom of the stratosphere, the winds are strong enough to propagate this wave to high altitude. Meteorologists say that it may go as high as 130,000 feet. So pretty interesting phenomenon, but uh, so we go to El Calafate, Argentina, which is one of the southernmost uh, airports along the Andes. And in their winter, which is July, August, September, at the high altitude, you get these polar vortex winds, which propagate the wave to high altitude. Uh, but you mentioned you're starting at an airport that's uh, 650 feet above above sea level. Is it uh, is there a reason sort of starting so low and then uh, and then going up to 10,000? Are there higher elevation airports nearby that you might use? It's the only airport within maybe 200 kilometers that's suitable. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so El, El Calafate is next to a big lake. And it's just downwind of a huge glacier system. It's in the summertime is a big tourist center now. They get like ten thousand people a week that uh, come to El Calafate to visit the glaciers. When you get there in July, there's about three flights a day that come into the airport. These are commercial flights, namely seven three sevens and some Embraers. Um, by September, when the tourist season is starting, they have about twelve flights a day. So one of the things that <clears throat> was really an eye-opening thing for me as I started learning about soaring and, and flying gliders, as a power pilot, never really looked that much into the, 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 the true definition of VNE and and how flutter affects that. And, and glider guys get that really, really well. They actually have polars, and um, they understand what altitude does to VNE in a sense of true airspeed versus an indicated when the altitudes that you're talking about, Jim, I mean, what what does your curve look like? I mean, at some point, is flutter an issue at all? 
Well, flutter is probably our biggest engineering concern. We have, for instance, large mass balances on the ailerons, um, last large mass balances on the elevator. We did a ground vibration test. We took it to ATA Corporation in San Diego, and they put 128 accelerometers on it and vibrated the airplane. From the vibration results, they generated a flutter model for high altitude. We have flutter exciters in the wingtips. These are electric motors that can swing some lead weights between 2 and 20 hertz, and we're able to induce these vibrations. We have accelerometers to measure the results. So we're doing a classic standard flight test buildup, just like the Air Force or NASA or the Navy would do if they were flight testing an airplane. The VNE at sea level is 121 knots indicated, and that's the VNE up to 30,000 feet. And then it starts to taper off, mainly because of Mach effects. And our VNE at 90,000 feet is 54 indicated, or 0.62 Mach number. Now, it's kind of interesting. At 90,000 feet, you get 6.7 knots of true airspeed for each knot of indicated. So even though the indicator says 54, your true airspeed would be 362 on a standard day. So. And what's your stall speed at that at, uh, in that area, that altitude? Well, our stall speed at low altitude where we have tested the airplane is 38 knots indicated. Uh, you two guys say we'll gain a couple knots as we go up in altitude, so roughly 40 knots at 90,000 feet. So, And at 40 knots, their speed's like 268 true, so... <laughs> So you got you know some some airspeed range there to work with. Now we expect the wind speed to be about 200. Typically, when we're climbing in a wave, you're pointed into the wind, and if your true airspeed is higher than the wind speed, which is a true speed, then you have to zigzag back and forth. Typically, the lift is in a line, and you just follow the line until the lift starts to taper off, and then you turn around and go back down the line. So you just do zigzags back and forth. So for all of this uh, high altitude and kind of, uh, you know, very uh, pushing the limits operations that you guys do, um, do you have any unusual or, or uh, special types of instrumentation in the, in the uh, aircraft? Is there uh, anything that a typical uh, pilot wouldn't uh, recognize in, in your cockpit? Actually not. Um, our main uh, flight display is LX-9000, which is one of the best glide computers in the world. And we're using that for a moving map. It uh, leaves a trace where you've flown. So when you're doing these zigzags in a wave, you can go back to where you were before, which is an excellent aid for the crew. We have probably the most extensive instrumentation system in a sailplane. We have a 485 bus, which measures all kinds of stuff, um, mainly life support stuff, as well as some of our flight test engineering stuff. Um, we're in the process of adding a vector nav inertial measurement unit, little INS thing, which is uh, weighs less than a 50-cent piece. It's really tiny, and we're going to use that to improve the quality of the data that we gather when we do our flight qualities testing. <clears throat> that is just fascinating. I, one of the other things that uh, has always interested me on the glider side is the the level of aerodynamic change and, and full trailing edge controls and reflexing your flaps and what, what uh, with the Perlin glider, you know, what level of trailing edge control do you guys get into? Well, in our case, we're a point design. 
we are designed to climb as efficiently as possible, which means that we have a very narrow airspeed range that we're interested in, mainly between stall and about 55 knots. Therefore, we have a fixed airfoil. Now, we have very long ailerons because we need the roll performance. But uh, unlike a racing glider where you have trailing edge flaps and you're actually using negative flaps at very high speeds, you know, in our case, they're not required. Now, at high speed, we wouldn't be near as efficient as uh, some of the flap cell planes. Gotcha, gotcha. So Airbus has been a, uh, a lead sponsor in your project. Could you um, talk a little bit about uh, how they became involved and what their role is? Well, um, we had a donor that gave us money to basically start the construction of the airplane. And that was not enough to finish the airplane. So we were looking for people that might be interested in aviation that would be a good sponsor. And we're able to connect with the CEO of Airbus uh, in Europe. He's an avid uh, aviation nut, Dr. Tom Enders. And uh, so that's what got the ball rolling. Airbus basically invited us to come to Washington. We gave a presentation to Airbus America. And they decided based on the expertise of the people on the team that we've gathered, we're all volunteers, but it's, it's a pretty amazing team. And what we had accomplished so far, that it would be an excellent project for them to be involved in. One of their goals is to not necessarily be a you know stodgy company. And little projects like this helps them kind of branch out and do unusual things and hopefully excite people that uh, might be interested in aviation and potentially work at Airbus. You know, if we look at the future, you know, I worked at Northrop for 10 years. You know, one of Northrop's big concerns is we have a lot of old engineers and they're not able to hire very many young ones. And uh, at some point there, we could have an engineering crisis. So anything we can do to get young people interested in soaring and aviation, we're all for it. That's one of our goals. So backing up just a little bit, uh, Jim, uh, it's interesting to me to learn. I've, I've Since this has been sort of on my radar, I've, I've thought of it as an Airbus project. So it's interesting to me to learn something you started independently and then they came on board uh, as a sponsor, which is uh, which is terrific. But can you give me some idea of the time frame? How long did it take to design and sort of what was the what was the timing from you having an idea to uh, to getting a design and then and then completing it and then moving to first flight? Well, the, the, you know, the Perlin, if you go way back to the beginning, in the 80s when I was flying the Grobe 103 with the pressure suit, we were only able to get the tropopause. And then Einar Einavoldsen, who was a test pilot at uh, NASA, then Dryden, um, he was working at Grobe in Europe, and he saw an image taken with a LIDAR that showed mountain wave at high altitude. After he did some research, he discovered that it was in one of these polar vortices. And so he got interested in studying the polar vortex and got connected up with Steve Fawcett, who, of course, is interested in, or was interested in records. They put a pressure suit system in a Grobe, uh, or excuse me, a DG-505 and flew it in El Calafate to just over 50,000 feet to claim the world altitude record. Because they were wearing pressure suits, um, they ended up in a very stiff suit because the suit, give, suit gives pressure above 35,000 feet. 
So at 50,000 feet, you're kind of a Michelin man, and it's kind of difficult to operate the suit. The other issue they had was the DG-505 leaked air pretty bad, so it was extremely cold in the cockpit. And basically on the way down, they decided, you know what, let's build a purpose-built pressurized sailplane. That was on August 29th in 2006. So from there, um, you know, they started the preliminary design. You know, unfortunately, Steve was lost in 2007, and with him, the program lost its funding. So it languished for about uh, three years, and you know, a little design work was done. And then we had a couple of contributors come on board and started building parts. And in 2011, when Airbus came on board. Uh, that was uh, just an interesting visual that you presented there. Uh, you know, two guys uh, descending in their uh, bulky pressure suits, freezing their butts off in the cockpit, uh, saying, next time we do this, we're building a pressurized one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so you guys, back in September, you broke the altitude record, 52,000-plus feet out, out there. What's next for you guys? Well, we are still in our flight test buildup. And on uh, September 3rd, we were still in good lift when we passed 52,000 feet. But, you know, per our test plan, that, that was you know, the end of the day for us. Um, our next uh, flight, we'll try to go. Well, the test plan will probably take us to 60,000 feet. And but then- uh, we're, we're, we're still trying to do a buildup. Engineering says somewhere above about 65,000 feet, we'll probably need a yaw damper. We actually have some hardware, and we've been doing some engineering. Um, you know, it appears if the pilot's actively in the loop, the Dutch roll damping will be fine. But uh, you know, if you relax a little bit, um, you might have a relatively unstable a Dutch roll. What do you think is the uh, you know among the aerodynamic and, and atmospheric principles that um, that you've been exploring with this project? What do you think is the most uh, significant contribution you've made so far? Well, probably it would be building an airfoil that operates at these low Reynolds numbers. Okay. In in the nineties, I was involved with a project called Apex at NASA, which got canceled. And they were trying to collect data for airfoils, which were optimized for high altitude, so they could be used on some of these uh, drones that are flying high. So that, that's one of the applications, I guess, for the technology that, uh, that you're working on right now. Are there any other um, major applications for the technology that Perlin's testing? Well, one piece of technology is the weather forecasting. We've got some folks working with us that are attempting to model the polar night jet and the mountain wave. And actually, they're generating some pretty good models. To someone flying fast through the wave, you can you know get strong up and down drafts, which may appear to turbulence to them. But we in the glider, since we have such a low ground speed, uh, you know it's extremely smooth to us. So predictions for clearer turbulence. Also flying in these waves, there is an expectation that there may be times when the wave structure becomes unstable and rapidly breaks down, which causes turbulence. So if we have an encounter, there will be some actual flight data to show what happened. That's uh, really amazing. Now, the 
sort of stated goal, and you've mentioned a couple of times sort of the design goal of the aircraft, is 90,000 feet. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right. So uh, at some point uh, when, you, when you break through that, when you hit the 90,000, uh, is that it uh, for this project, or will you, will you keep going? Will you try for 100? Do you think 100,000 is possible? If you extrapolate, uh, you know, 0.62 Mach to our stall speed, the two cross at 96,000 feet. So that would is where Coffin Corner would be. Sure. When when Ainer first started building the airplane, he really wanted to go to 100,000 feet. But when they started doing the design studies, they realized that to go to 100,000 feet using the straight wing conventional airfoil, which is something you have to use for climbing in the wave, you have to have an extremely low wing loading. And if you make the wing loading low enough to go to 100,000 feet, then you start having massive problems with ground handling. Because typically on these days when the mountain wave is working, you're going to have gusty winds at the airport. So as they did their trade-off, um, if you design an airplane which kind of has the same wingspan and the same shape and the same mass as an open-class sailplane, you end up with the Perlan. So then that's 90,000 feet. And what's the, what's the Carmen line again? The, uh, the, the division between uh, basically where space starts? Well, it's a good, line, good question. It's a continuum. I think you, what, you have to go to 50 miles to get your astronaut wings. So we're not getting that close, but uh, there's pretty darn thin up there. <laughs> yeah, and rest assured for our listeners, at those, even at 60,000 feet, the sky is getting bluish black. And there's a curvature to the horizon line. It's it's way up there. Yeah. And what a view! Uh, what a view that must be. Looking down on you twos. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. That'll be something. Yeah. Um, so, Jim, uh, what about for you? Uh, for you personally? So, I mean, at some point, the uh, you know the program will achieve its design goals. Uh, you know, you'll learn what you're going to learn from it. Uh, do you have another another project in mind after that? Uh, not at this time. You know, I'm, I'm retired from the Air Force, so this might be my swan song here. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. I just wanted to point out what a neat spectrum that soaring has. I mean, we're talking about unbelievable altitudes in, in a whole other environment that's very, very risky in many respects, but also amazingly beautiful in many respects. And yet at the other end of the spectrum, you've got this wonderful mechanism that I just experienced with my son, Ryan, who sold it on his 14th birthday in an ASK-21, probably the best start any aviator could have. And that's why the Air Force Academy, even today, uses gliders as part of their curriculum. So just I had to point out, Hal, that this is an amazing part of aviation that runs, pardon the pun, the whole spectrum. Absolutely. It is incredible to think about, uh, as you said, you know, your son Ryan out there doing his uh, doing his solos, and you know, going up a few thousand feet and taking in the sights and things like that. And then here's here's Jim using, if not the same technology, the same sort of environmental mechanisms, and going to, if not the edge of space, uh, going to a place that certainly starts to look like that. That is powerful stuff. Exactly. And there's another dimension to soaring, which is the cross-country dimension. My furthest flight is 2,907 kilometers, which is like 1,806 miles. Oh that, that, that was done from Minden, basically between uh, Reno and Mojave, back and forth. 
12 and a half hour flight. I have a world record for speed over a thousand kilometer course, which is 154 miles an hour. So I couldn't average that much in my 182 for a thousand kilometers. <laughs> and you said that was a 12 and a half hour flight? The Yeah, the 1,806-mile flight was 12.5. I've actually flown 15.6 in one flight in Argentina. Wow. Uh, Not to be indelicate, but since the astronauts get this question, uh, you know, you're fair game. Um, Are you able to use the restroom? (laughs) Well, um, normally we use baggies, but uh, as part of Perlin, Omni Medical became involved, and they provide systems to the Air Force. And uh, basically, for men, they have a rigid cup. For ladies, a little canoe-shaped thing. And at the bottom, there is a tube which has a couple of electrodes, and whenever it sees fluid, it turns a pump on, and it pumps the fluid to a bag. So really slick system. Wow. Uh, I'm surprised to say this, but I'm glad I asked. I wasn't wasn't sure there for a moment it just comes out because – Let's face it, I'm, I'm a 12-year-old at heart. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to ask how, uh, what, what it was like to be uh, a, a member of the Spherical Earth uh, Conspiracy. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> uh, yeah, any messages for the flat earthers out there, Jim? <laughs> so, Somebody said they actually saw a picture that we had taken from the Perlin from 52,000 feet on some flat earth society thing. And oh, actually, if you look at it close, there's a little bit of curvature already at 52,000. <laughs> So they weren't sure what point they were trying to make. Well, thank you for doing your part. <laughs> yes. So, Jim, with all that cross-country experience, uh, certainly you have landed out a time or two. And that's another thing that, that absolutely blew me away as a power guy kind of first getting into soaring is what in the power world people consider a pretty serious deal. In the soaring world and community, it's like normal procedure. is landing off field. Um, how many times have you ever had to do that? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Wow, good question. You know, I've been soaring cross-country since 1973. Um, Flying in the west where I live now, typically we're flying at pretty high altitudes. In my old age, I always abort early enough to go to an airport. You know, if if, if you're running, if you got a glider that, you know, is above 40 to 1 and you're running around at, uh, you know, 10 to 14,000 feet AGL, you got quite a bit of range. But, uh, you know, early on, you know, I've landed in mainly plowed fields. You know, you can, if you plan ahead, you should be able to pick out a good field. And you should actually never go anywhere in the glider unless you've got something within range that you know is landable. So if you're flying in the Midwest where there's lots of fields or in the San Joaquin Valley or something, that's pretty straightforward. If you're flying, you know, say over Utah or places like that, you need to be a little more careful. <laughs> but, uh, wow, the... Probably the most interesting, I landed once in a parking lot at a racetrack in Texas. And uh, the, the big thing when you're landing around civilization is wires. You don't want to hit a wire. Sure. And, uh, so I actually made an approach over some wires, used the air brakes to maximum to get up close to the ground as soon as possible. And it was a good decision because as I went past the grandstands there was a wire that was about 12 feet off the ground that, that didn't have any poles for about 300 feet so i went underneath it and, uh, <laughs> nothing lost but, but i was glad that uh, i had uh, been disciplined and uh, did a good job 
Any repercussions from a flight like that? Anybody at the racetrack come out and give you a hard time? Uh, the racetrack was closed. I don't, I don't remember. Well, nobody gave us any trouble. Um, I once landed at a airport in Southern California, which is a sky park, and uh, one of the residents threatened us with a shotgun. But uh, <laughs> the, the neighbors said, he's, you know, He's not very nice. And, you know, so. so you married his daughter and moved on with your life, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I once made a uh, nice glider uh, landing uh, off airport. Uh, the glider I was flying was a Cherokee 140, though, and uh, we won't go into too many okay. details, but uh, it was uh, not as smooth as you made that sound. So, <laughs> The lovely glide ratio of what, about one-to-one? Uh, like a baby grand piano. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, Jim, we can't thank you enough for taking some time to uh, to join us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, you know, you've got a very busy schedule, and and I know we had a couple of uh, little hiccups getting things scheduled. So we appreciate your patience uh, in particular. Uh, I'd also, of course, like to say thank you for your service in the in the Air Force. Uh, that's uh, that's. Uh, Quite an impressive career, and uh, we talked about spectrums earlier. You've certainly seen the spectrums as far as uh, speed and altitude in just about every other uh, every other regime. Well, thank you, Hal. Um, when I close, I always like to tell people that if they've never tried soaring, they should give it a chance. You know, it's the purest form of aviation, and it's amazing how many people I meet that say, I wish I had tried it sooner. And for folks interested in the Perlin Project, we have a really nice website. My wife has been blogging. There must be 60 different blogs or so on there, which explains what we've done. You know, there's things that explain the polar vortex and the mountain wave and what it was like to be in Argentina. And, of course, pictures from high altitude as well as some videos. So perlinproject.org. Excellent. And we'll be sure to provide a link to that uh, when we post this episode once it goes live. Okay, thanks, Hal. Uh, that's terrific. Well, Jim, thanks uh, once again. Thanks, uh, as always, to producer Ty for uh, stringing things along and, and pulling it all together. Uh, Ty, I should point out, uh, started with us as an intern and is now a, uh, a full-time employee, assuming he survives his probationary period. We're looking at him. Sean, thanks a lot for coming on board as guest host, bringing some extra glider expertise. That's, uh, that's an area of aviation that's always fascinated me, and one of these days I'm really going to get out there and... Uh, and get into it with some seriousness. But anyway, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks for the reviews and the feedback. Those mean a great deal to us. Uh, your great reviews and, and positive comments are the very reason that uh, this podcast uh, keeps going. So keep uh, those things coming. Keep the feedback coming. Send us your ideas, questions, anything you'd like us uh, to cover in an episode. And with that, we look forward to talking to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.